Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted 2015, a Christ Central festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom transforming the world, and reaching nations making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next year. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Business and Leadership Life Zone. If you're just coming in, there are three seats here. Another two here on the front. you got one there as well, so uh, one at the end there. So Paul, I've got probably half a dozen seats at the front here still. Thank you. Okay, so a few more people are going to join us, it looks like, just in the next few moments. But uh, I think because we've got so much to get through this morning, uh, we're going to make a start. Those of you who were here yesterday, uh, we had an excellent morning and uh, looking at some leadership lessons uh, from the world of business. It's great to have Keith and Rachel Cooper and John Batten speaking. It was an excellent morning. And uh, tomorrow morning we've got the uh, Newcastle United football manager Steve McLaren with us. And we'll be looking at leadership lessons from the world of sports. Um, but this morning it's great to have uh, Terry with us. And I'll introduce him properly in a moment. And we're looking at leadership uh, lessons from and uh, for uh, the world of church and and ministry, and looking forward to all that uh, Terry's going to bring us. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I've invited Jeff Steady to uh, talk briefly about an organisation that he's involved with called Transform Work UK. So uh, why don't you welcome Jeff, please. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Morning, Jeff. Yeah, okay. Can I ask you a question, please? How many people have actually witnessed to a colleague in the workplace, you know, in recent memory? Fantastic. Look at that. How many people have actually won a colleague for the, for the Lord? Give them a round of applause. That is amazing. I remember one time we had a really hard, hard liner guy, and I took him on a, on, on a, on a trip to Romania with us. By Wednesday night, he was shaking like a leaf. And by Friday night, he more or less collapsed into the kingdom of God. And you can do that as an individual. You can win an individual. But if you want to influence a whole organization or a group, you need to work with others. The reason for that, there's a number of reasons for that. But one of the good ones is this. That when you work in a group... There are certain spiritual dynamics that are released, like, you know, agreement, like unity, like service, like prayer, and so forth. They're really spiritually powerful for influencing an organization and a group. And Transform Work UK is an organization that exists for that specific purpose of encouraging Christian groups in the workplace... I'm speaking about groups that actually like to formalize a little bit, interact with management, get some kind of recognition uh, or accreditation, and that opens up an entire 
organization because once you've got accreditation from your organization, nobody can really discredit Christianity anymore because they can't do that and they'd be discrediting their organization. So that makes a, a fantastic difference. And in my case, I started with a very small number of people and it grew to about 90 people and then it grew to about 150 people. And suddenly I found an enormous range of opportunities opened up, which I haven't got time to tell you about, but, but this, that I actually, what I used to do was to put myself, I'd ring up and put myself in the diary of the chief executive and different directors. We're talking about an organization with two and a half thousand employees. I put myself in their diary and I'd go and talk to them and I would say, listen, I would just want to tell you how the Christian group is doing. And I want to read the scriptures and I want to pray with you. Is that okay? <laughs> So we had a lot of fun. And in my experience, you know, the Christian Workplace Group is transformational. Now, Transform Work UK actually exists for this specific purpose, and we provide loads of uh, excellent materials and uh, training, and we give personal contact and personal support to leaders of Christian Workplace Groups. And uh, at the moment, as we stand... Uh, we have got 324 Christian workplace groups and um, 52 Christian professional groups. But the rate of growth is actually outstripping our resources. So I'm hoping that all you guys are going to sign up to come and help us after today. Uh, I want to leave us, and I, this is the time that I've been allocated, so I just want to leave us with a bit of a challenge today. It does need a bit of leadership. It does need a bit of character. But I've got 324 groups that say it can be done. And I want to leave you with a a challenge that says that all of us together should, in a kind of prophetic and apostolic way, together, embrace certain fundamentals. Here they are. Number one, that extending the kingdom is a key function of church. Somebody say amen. Amen. (laughs) That... Creating Christian workplace groups is actually an achievable way of doing that. Somebody say amen. How about this one? The Christian workplace group leaders should be seen in the same light as church leaders and church planters. And that appropriate level of focus should be put on increasing Christian groups in the workplace. We've got 324. I think there are countless numbers of businesses and organizations in this country that could and really should have a Christian workplace group and each and every one of those can be exposed to the kingdom of God if we will take the initiative and do it. We've got a stand. Michael and I are here. We'll be talking about this at some length tomorrow morning in the public sector uh, live zone. Come and talk to us and let's have some interaction. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Jeff. So these guys have got to stand in a hub. If you want to connect with them, then that's the place to do it. So it's a great joy for us to welcome Terry Virgo to us this morning, a uh, founder of New Frontiers, which, of which Christ Central Churches uh, is a part, and it's so great to have you speaking in this zone, Terry. So let's honour and welcome Terry as he comes. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Uh, I was looking forward so much to being at the conference, seeing ministry multiplied. Uh, I was just thinking earlier, being in the prayer time with Jeremy and some of you guys, and just hearing him give the lead, give the vision, lead the prayer, and just knowing that's being repeated now. Uh, similarly, down in the West Point and uh, in Ashburnham Place with Dave Holder's group, just knowing, hey, God's just moving it all on. Different worship groups, different seminar leaders, everything reproducing, multiplying, everything you ever dreamed of. So it's a great joy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, and I hope I can be a blessing to you. I'd like to pray, and then we'll get down to talking about some leadership lessons. Okay, Father, thank you so much for the worship that we've already brought to you, the joy of celebrating you in all your fullness, your kindness, your wonderful grace. Lord, we do thank you. And Father, we we just come to you now. Pray that your spirit will rest on us now, that we might learn from you. Pray for guidance to highlight things that you would have me highlight and that we might hear beyond, uh, Lord, things I might say, hear things in our hearts appropriate to us because you said my sheep hear my voice and follow me. And so, Father, I pray, would you be active in this time that we're together now? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm more comfortable when I'm working on a Bible passage, because when you're talking about leadership lessons, you can pick them up from all sorts of places, and uh, I hope I can bring stuff that's genuinely helpful to you. I think, just to say straight away, that a, a, a church leader isn't something that you kind of um, volunteer for. It's something that God initiates. God, uh, throughout the scriptures, we see God is the first mover in this. It's God who chooses us. And uh, it's so important to get that clear. We find right from the beginning, God choosing Abraham, God uh, choosing Jacob, just God calling, God calling. And no one uh, kind of volunteers. I think we can always say, Lord, I want to serve, I want to serve. Uh, my youngest son, Tim, said to me some years ago, Dad... I'd love, love to serve the Lord, but I know you've got to have a call. How, what do you do about that? And uh, I know I've got to be called. I can't assume anything. And I was reminded of that verse in Timothy, which says uh, that if you have a, if you're a vessel unto honour, you can be ready, ready for the Lord. And I said, just you know, be available, serve Him as much as you're able, but wait, wait for Him, wait for Him to call if He's going to call you, because you need to know that you're not just in this thing because someone pushed you into it or someone else volunteered you, or like when I remember at my last year at school, a guy said to me, as he was leaving school, he said, I'm going into politics. He said, if I can't go into, get into politics, I'll go into the church. And uh, it's like something I could take up. And uh, I was taking a young man with me once when I was in the Brighton church, and often took young guys with me. And I said to him, so what are you going to do with your life? He said, well, I, I could get into teaching more. I'm in teaching now. I could get into business like my dad. Uh, I could put money into the church like my dad does. Or I could get into, I could be a pastor. And I kind of trembled <laughs> as he was saying, I could do this, I could do this. I thought, no, 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 it's not like that. God has to initiate it. And when you know God's called you, you feel ultimately it's God I'm accountable to. And that's got to be your bottom line, really. It's not that you serve the church it's not that you serve the trustees. It's not that you serve the next vote. You've got to have deep in your soul this awareness, I'm called by God. 
I answer to God. I'm not a professional minister. I answer to God. Now, that isn't something we have in an arrogant, sort of isolated sense. I hope I can come later to talk about team and how we work in teams and how highly I value being in team, that you really are listening to others. You're you're drawing on other people's strengths. You're listening together. But nevertheless, that bottom line is this awareness, God called me. And I think it's so thrilling when you look at 1 Corinthians when it says, God has chosen not many bright, not many powerful, not many noble. God's chosen the weak things and the foolish things and the things that are not. You don't get much lower than not. Uh, and, and when you hit the tough patches, which in Christian ministry you do, and you're up against it, and and or maybe you're getting opposition. All sorts of harsh things can happen, or you're having self-doubt, or having uh, fiery arrows sent from Satan at you. This is your bottom line, Lord. You called me. You called me, and it's that is builds in such strength for the long journey. And uh, you know, Christian ministry is not a. It's not a. Uh, a, you know, a, a, a bolt hundred yards, is it? It's, it's a marathon. It's a ministry we want to keep going in. And, and I find such strength knowing God, God called. It was God who initiated. God had planned this. God knew what he was doing. And you lean back into God. And I would, can't underline how important I find that to be. That you serve God because he's the one who initiated it. Then I would say this, that every one of us and we are, in a sense, as leaders, we're modeling. Gideon's great word was this, look, watch me do as I do. It's not do what I say, it's do what I do. And a leader, in that sense, is meant to be exemplary. If you look at the uh, qualifications for an elder in Timothy and Titus, it's just like normal Christian stuff, but he does it all. It's things that you know about, you know, like your family, like order, and, and all sorts of good Christian values, but this guy actually does it. And, and so leaders are meant to be exemplary. They're meant to be able to look at you and see consistency. And, and, and so it's not just that we can put a sermon together, but there's a life that you can look at and think, no, that, that's how he is. That's what he does. That's how his family is. That's, that's what, what he says is there in his life. And so we just need to say, no, no, it's, I'm before God for this. Uh, and people will investigate. So Paul says in Thessalonians, he says, look, the gospel we brought to you came not in word only, so it was in word, it was biblically rooted, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Then he says this, and you know what manner of men we proved to be among you. So we need to be among people. We need to, people will investigate. They'll lift up the carpet and look and see what's there. Is this guy consistent? Does he stick with his decisions when we hit problems? Or does he change track easily? When he hits delays, when he hits setbacks, when he hits financial challenges, does he abandon it? We say, oh, we're going over here now. Well, I don't know if I want to follow this guy because, well, he, he changes track too quickly. To be followed, there's got to be some consistency. There's got to be goals and objectives that you're going for. And you've got to be, as it were, you can cut through and find that what we say is what's in there. So a leader has got some integrity in terms of his vision, in terms of his values. If we haven't, people will not feel they can trust you. You may be an eloquent preacher. You may be able to hold a meeting. But we know some of the high-flying voices 
that, wow, what a voice. Have you followed him online and so on? Then you think, oh, gosh, where did he go? And so life, in the end, is you have to build from something that can stand the test of inquiry, inspection, being in your life, being in your home, and being consistent. So Jesus said, the Father is seeking worshippers. So I would say one of my first callings is to be a worshipper. Like God's looking for worshippers. Does he find one in your home? The Father, Jesus said it plainly, the Father is seeking worshippers. So I would say, God seemed to say to me very early on in ministry, your first calling is to be a worshipper. And when I was first called, I, I left secular work, and uh, it was a strange call really. Uh, I knew another guy who was living by faith, and we were getting growing passion for revival. And I'd recently been baptized in the Spirit which was like, wow, what is this? You know, I'm from a Baptist background, and suddenly, hey, people are getting filled with the Spirit. This is my 1962, you know, ancient history. And uh, and we think, is this the beginning of revival? And I felt God called me to give myself to prayer, and then I started going from house to house doing evangelism, at which I was very poor. And uh, and, and, you know, it was very depressing, because I was so bad at it. And the housing estate I went to, to do it in, the Mormons had been there many times. In fact, they'd already put a building up. Not one of their temples, but a Mormon building. And the Jehovah's Witness had been there. So that by the time I knock the door, I'm like the third one to come. And I think, you know, bang, no. So I'm not very good at this. And I'm thinking, oh, this is terrible. And I thought God said to me, your first calling is to be a worshipper. Everything else is secondary. I think I learned that very early. And I've tried to walk with that, that my first calling is to be a worshipper. I thank God that he impressed that on me. I thank God that that's become part of my experience. So, yeah, I'm not to be work-centered. I don't find my identity from how well the last meeting went or how well other people feel about something I wrote or just, you know, my ministry is not where I find my identity and value I find myself in the presence of God as a worshipper. I'm putting my roots down in that context. I want to be a worshipper of Jesus. So that's primary for me on a daily basis. On a daily basis, I'm a worshipper. So Jesus said, you know, when you, when you pray, shut the door, talk to your father. And Jesus said these wonderful things. I won't, mustn't get into it because it stirs me quite a lot. In John, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And and then he said, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you can be. And I know people think that's when, you know, it's when you snuff it and God's got a room somewhere for you in heaven and he's kind of giving a fresh lick of paint and pushing up the cushions. Now I think he's saying, there's a place you can be with me. I'm going to prepare a place. It's like I've got a room for you. I've got a place for you. It's like he said, listen, I'm the true vine. You're the branches. If you will remain in me, we kind of use that word abide like it's a religious word. Abide. What's abide mean? It's not not a word you use, is it? You haven't written home to anyone saying, I'm abiding at Newark at the moment. <laughs> we don't use that word. We only we only use it at cup finals, you know, abide with me. I mean, it's like it's like it doesn't mean anything outside of religion. So if you abide in me and I abide in you, hmm, and then some modern translations have put remain. That's an exciting word, isn't it? Remain. 
But it really, it does really mean make your dwelling, make the place you live. If you would, if you would make your place you live in me, and I make the place I live in you, you're going to be fruitful. And I find that, and Jesus, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a room. So he uses language. You know, when, he, when, he, when Jesus is talking to 12 disciples, he says, I am the vine. It's like they think, he says, he thinks he's a tree now. <laughs> no, he has to use language. Now, he's a tree, I'm a branch. When the Spirit comes, he'll lead you into this truth. I'm going to prepare a room for you. And if I go and prepare, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you can be also. Then you'll know, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, I'm in you. Paul uses different languages. He says, my life is hid with Christ in God. He brings us to a place, you're seated with him. So beloved, all our ministry must come out of this enjoyment and experience of God's acceptance, favour, invitation to be with him and if we don't cultivate that you're going to be so uh, subject to disappointment you know the, the worst preach you just did you know I remember getting off a stonely platforms and wishing I could go and die somewhere because I thought oh that was the worst sermon I've ever heard and I was giving it you know this is terrible <laughs> I want to go and die somewhere I mean that happens so many times doesn't it through a lifetime so if, if you don't have a place where you can get renewed, restored fellowship with Jesus, it's utterly vital, utterly vital, especially as a leader, because you get more pressure than the average believer. And in pastoral ministry, you're a bit like a doctor sometimes. People come to you when they're in pain. And so you pick up other people's pain, and there's enough to be depressing. So if you don't know what it is to lift your heart in worship and celebration and singing, making melody with all your heart, being filled with the Spirit, that's my morning exercise. That's my morning discipline. It's not legalism. I hope we all know, don't we? We're not under law. We're not trying to impress God. Look, Lord, I did half an hour. Impressive, eh? No, Jesus has already done the impressing bit. Hallelujah. I'm righteous because of Jesus. That's a done deal. It's for my enjoyment, it's for my nourishment, it's for my awareness. God's for me, with me. If I didn't have that, I would have just been blown away. It's so tough to be a leader, we need to understand. Otherwise, we're at the mercy of all sorts of stuff. So, uh, enter his gates with thanksgiving. For me, it's like, thank you, Lord, thank you for a good night's sleep. Thank you I didn't hit anything in the car yesterday. Thank you. I mean, just trivial little things, or maybe big things. But thank you, Lord. I just come in. And then I'm looking and saying, Lord, thank you. It's because of your mercy that all these things are happening. And it leads me to the cross. It leads me, that's where, that's where it all happened. And so I find he leads me there. And I'm singing songs that are full of truth. And that's, beloved leaders, that's how you measure, measure songs for your worship. That they've got content. Not just a pretty melody, or you can clap to it, but it's got truth in it. That truth is worth having in your own devotions. And if you're leaders, we need to be helping our worship leaders to sing songs that are full of truth. And so you're singing truth to God, your spirit begins to rise. You're beginning to enjoy God, you're experiencing Him. You remember He's the provider, He's your source, He's the one who's led you. And you get fellowship with the Holy Spirit. For me, that's fundamental as a leader. Absolutely fundamental. Sam Storm says this, Enjoying God 
is not a momentary diversion from more important responsibilities you have as a Christian. Enjoying God is not a means to a higher end. This is the end. God's seeking worshippers. So leaders, we should just be exemplary. Worship, we've just found that, and that's true. We know it's true, so we'd make sure we do it. We're not telling other people to do it. We're saying, no, that's true. I need to know that for myself. I'm enjoying God. I'm experiencing him. George Mueller, that famous uh, Christian leader who was contemporary of Spurgeon and Hudson Taylor and all those mighty giants that were in the land at that time, and he, as you probably know, cared for thousands of orphans without any support. I mean, it was a faith work. He actually said, I did it not for the sake of the orphans, but to demonstrate God's faithfulness. Extraordinary man. But he said this, my chief duty every day is to make sure my soul is happy in God. It's an incredible statement. My chief duty every day, make sure my soul is happy in God. Sounds very selfish. When you've got thousands of orphans. Hey, what about the thousands of orphans? No, my chief duty. Make sure my soul is happy. So it's absolute paramount importance. You know, when you get on a flight, one of the first things they say to you is, if there's an oxygen problem, you'll find the mask will fall. And they say, take the mask, stick it over your face, you know, breathe in the oxygen. And then they say, if you've got a dependent child with you, put it on yourself first. You say, no, 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 my little boy. I care for him so much. I'll put it on him first. You see, so you, you put his on first. And he says, don't want it, don't want it, don't want it. So, no, put it on Johnny. Don't want it. <gasps> put it on Johnny. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, get it on yourself first, all right? They know what they're talking about. We need to make sure my soul is happy in God. Then I can serve other people. And if we allow our soul to get unsettled, jealous, scared of financial challenges, whatever it is, you're going to not lead very well. So it's of huge importance. Secondly, and again, these have to be random, that's what I said. Secondly, I would say, make sure you're feeding on truth. You're feeding on the word. Have some kind of system. It may change from time to time. But have some way whereby you are feeding on truth regularly. That, you're, that the truth is strengthening you. And, and I've, I keep changing the way I do it to try and keep it fresh. So I had, I had for some years, I did a thing called a meditation course, which uh, um, I, went, I went on a training program, a biblical meditation course. And I used to do it that way for years, uh, which I won't go into the detail of. And, and then I thought, mm, I think I'm going to change. And I, I started, I went through Isaiah's, uh, uh, through Matthias' commentary on Isaiah. I went through, I'd never done that before. I worked through a commentary. I found that was great. And then I thought, no, I, wanna, I, wanna, I haven't seen the whole story for a long time. So I used the Murray McShane Bible reading plan. And the first year I did that, where you read the Old Testament once, the New Testament and Psalms twice through a year. And the first time I did that, I thought, oh, this is terrible. I'm not taking anything in. I'm just reading it to get through. And I, and I, but I got through the year. And at the end of the year, I thought, mm, I don't know, maybe that was good. And so I did it again. And actually, I did it for five years. And in the end, I was really enjoying it. So I had to get used to it. 
And then after the five years, I thought, no, I want to get back into more detail in in a passage, because this reading is a different style. So what I'm saying is, I'm only trying to illustrate, we've got to find different ways, and I think changing the way you do it is not a bad idea. It kind of keeps you fresh, a different approach. But get into the Word, let the Word get into you. It's not only for your meeting with Jesus and nourishment, it's that you think biblically. You think, more and more you think biblically. And there's so much strange theology around. There's so many fancies and things that come through that the more you are, you think biblically, the safer the church will be that you build. And, you know, we've been around as a movement for a long time now, and all kinds of fads have gone through the church during that season. And in God's mercy, we've not tended to run after Things that you think, well, I remember when that was a preoccupation? Lasted about two years, that, and it went. And why didn't New Frontiers get into that? Well, actually, we didn't think it was biblical. And so we didn't run after it. And, and I think, you know, for you, for your local church, whatever it is we lead, that we say, Lord, help me to think biblically. Help me to have a really good biblical base. It's not just knowledge, because it says knowledge puffs up. So that's not good news. But we do need to learn. We need to get well established. So I've, I've found lately I've gone back to commentaries again. And I, I mean, just, I don't know if it's helpful or not. I, I found, to say, Peter O'Brien, I think is a terrific commentator. Douglas Moo. I've just been through Douglas Moo's uh, recent commentary on Galatians. I've been through Peter O'Brien's on Hebrews. I'm just going through Peter O'Brien's on Ephesians a second time. I just, I just find it so helpful to, you know, just day by day, <laughs> Work my way through these things. Keep on feeding on truth. I think it's hugely, hugely important. Let God speak to you. Read biographies when you can find good ones. Uh, really, so so beneficial. Read read about men of God. You can you can rub shoulders with giants, and just to go back and read biographies, people who've just you know I read Bonhoeffer biography a year or two back. I mean, what a man. And these other great missionary giants, I find reading biographies so provocative. I would just commend you to biographies and books that stretch you, books that theologically push you a bit further. So I would say read, keep reading, keep feeding your mind. Right? So we are enjoying the presence of God. We're making sure we're feeding on truth. Thirdly, you've got to deny yourself right? as a leader. And I don't mean by that we become an ascetic. We know the New Testament has no time for asceticism. But there's a real issue that we are to lose our lives. And it's a fundamental thing, really. It's, it's like something that you... Uh, it's like a decision you make. And then it has to be repeated in various settings when situations arise. So when you've... When you've, when you've lost your rights, you're never going to say that's not fair because you've dealt with that you're going to hit things that aren't fair and so you're not forever pleading for justice because no you already lost the right to justice I always remember C.J. Mahaney, some of you remember that wonderful guy and uh, he said, he said if you're going to say to God I demand justice he said please don't stand too close to me when you pray that prayer <laughs> Let the lightning bolt hit you, but I don't want to get it. And, you know, we came in on grace, so we just need to understand that things will happen that are not fair. 
And you just, it mustn't get to you. So we had articles written against us back in the 80s. Terrific hostility. I mean, incredible hostility when we started planting churches. So who do you think you are? Planting churches, how dare you? I had articles written against me that I was leading a sect uh, that was a cult. And uh, it was compared with the guy went down to Jonestown and they all committed suicide together. They were writing it. They were saying, that's what we were doing. It's like a new cult. And you think, that's not fair. No, you think, no, no, come on. They, they don't know who we are. They don't understand. If you don't, if you demand justice, you're going to be in trouble. You're just going to say, that's the way it goes. And you'll find it in your local church. Sometimes that's just not fair. And sometimes, if I may put it this way, wives, you find it harder than your husband sometimes. Because you think, they don't know how hard he works. And this isn't fair. Come on, come on, do something. And, and sometimes we feel, this just, you know, being fair is the biggest thing. And in the end, it isn't. It really isn't. So when you lose your life, it's not because, we don't become ascetic. You know, we were, we were those early ascetics in the church that went, lived on the top of a pillar and all that kind of the pillar saints and stuff and the fasted. We're not into that. We're not into asceticism. But we are into denying ourselves the right to argue our case. And so we find, no, no, we can, we can forgive. We don't demand justice. And, and, and you, once you've got that right in your heart, it helps you so much. But yeah, okay, that wasn't fair, but we can't live there anymore. On we go. On we go. It's so important for us. You don't defend your reputation. You just think, if they knew, if they knew everything about me, no one would follow. You know, you just gotta think, no, it's, you don't, you've just gotta get through on these things. A dead man has no rights. We've been crucified with Christ, we don't have rights to fight for. And it frees you, actually, although sometimes you have to fight the battle. I think it starts with the decision. It starts with identifying with Jesus. It was so unfair what happened to him, and we were in him. We were crucified with him. And then you have to apply that when you come to situations. Sometimes, husbands, you have to help your wives, because they feel it for you. They love you. They want, they want some justice for you. And sometimes you're getting grace for it because somehow, well, no, and and sometimes she's hurting more than you are. We've got to help one another through. And say, no, it's okay. We're going to press through this. Otherwise, we will give up or we'll move. We say, oh, the Lord's leading me away. And what it is, I, you know, I don't like this. And there are things you won't like. And you have to keep going and work your way through. So don't fight for yourself. Deny yourself. Closely related to that, enjoy grace. You expect me to say that, so I won't labor it. Uh, (laughs) We are righteous as a gift. We have to stand strong in that. And uh, that helps you overcome condemnation, helps you overcome depression, disappointment. Hey, uh, we stand by grace. He is my righteousness. When I wake up tomorrow morning, he's still my righteousness. He's perfected us for all time. It doesn't get any better than that. We are righteous as a gift. Tomorrow morning, I am not looking back to how did I do yesterday. See, sometimes I I was speaking in, um, I think it was in St. Louis earlier in the year. I was invited to speak to three conferences of church planters. 
two or three days running, St. Louis, Detroit, Chicago. And they asked me to speak about the church planter's prayer life. And then just before I gave this talk, a guy gave up, came out and gave a 10-minute thing. And he absolutely blasted them and said, you know, you've got to be aware of your sin and you've got to be, you know, you need confession. We need more confession. It really, and I thought, I'm going to stand up in a minute and say the exact opposite to what this guy <laughs> said. And, uh, and, and cause so people will say this, if you're going to pray, start with confession. It sounds like it makes good sense. You know, clear the decks first. But if you do that, say, Lord, I come to you, I'm so sorry for this. And then Satan says, and this. Oh, yeah, and that. And, and this. And what about that? Yeah, yeah, sorry about that as well. And, and before you know where you are, prayer just becomes the most depressing thing you do all day. Because you start with yourself instead of when Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You'll get to as you go. If you use that structure, I find it a helpful structure, kind of headings. Forgive us our trespasses. You'll get there. But I'm sorry. Yeah, but you don't, you're not sin-centered. So much evangelicalism is sin-centered. And to be honest, I mean, I, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I, I, I stand on a reformed stance. But tragically, those who are famously reformed are very often famously sin-centered. They're just all the time, oh, we're such sinners. And uh, it doesn't help, and it's not true. We need to stand on the grace of God, declare what he says we are, celebrate what he says we are, and then, yeah, if, we, if, we, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We confess our sin. But we don't live there. It's so important. We live in grace. And if you don't live in grace, you will not win the battle. It's so important that we are strong in grace. And then quickly, gosh, uh, love the saints. Alright? Love the saints. Be for people. Be for them. Forgive. Forbear. Keep believing for. Don't have an attitude that is essentially hostile. Let's be for people. Let's affirm. Let's encourage. There's so much out there to discourage. There's so much out there to beat them up and knock them down. We need to be for people. Our ministry needs to be uplifting, encouraging. It's important that that is the case. Don't be shocked. Don't be a professional. Learn to receive people as they are. Don't be suspicious. Avoid gossip. Don't be like that. In a sense, you always need to be naive. I'd rather be vulnerable and naive than suspicious. I'd rather take the risk of taking people at face value. I'd rather take the risk. I'd rather build a culture where I believe you, you expect me to believe you, rather than, well, no one really trusts one another around here. That's, I don't want to develop that culture. Now, I might get taken for a ride sometimes, but I'd rather risk that then develop a culture where no one actually trusts. And you, you leaders, you're the ones who develop a culture. And, and, and beloved, there's a movement. We want to have a culture. I'm fascinated. I was, uh, I had a conversation recently with an American guy who called me up. I didn't know him, but I, I just got this call from him. I met with him in a hotel in London. He said, I'd like you to speak, please, at a conference in Europe. Uh, he's a PhD, he's American, but he does a lot of conferences in, in Europe. 
and uh, I've agreed to go next year. And uh, he was talking to me, he said, can I have a half an hour with you? Well, it was like two and a half hours by the time we finished. And he just said, I've never come across a movement like yours before. And I'm waiting, I'm thinking, I'm waiting for the usual one, which is, you're reformed and charismatic? That's the you know, oh, I've never seen, I thought, here it comes. And he said, no, he said, I've never seen a movement so relational. I said, what? He said, I've met several of your pastors. The way they talk about one another, he said, I've never met it before. And this is a guy organizing conferences, knowing hundreds of leaders. And I just was so blessed. He said, just the way they talk about one another. He said, I would love to put you on a platform in front of hundreds of leaders and ask you loads of questions. That's right. He honestly said that to me. And I had a letter from him last week, an email, saying, here's the program for next May, I think it is. And he said, all the, all the stream groups want you to speak. There are about five different streams. And I just thought, Lord, I'm so grateful. And it's just a blessing to be here. And, you know, people say, oh, well, he's with that group and that group, but, oh, but, but we're crossing over. And it's not like we're competitive. It's like we're with one another. We're for one another. We want the best with one another. And I follow Twitter all the time. So, you know, you've seen the guys down at um, West Point saying, we're praying for you guys at Newark. And the guys at Ashburn, and we're praying for you. And you think, yes, yes, yes. We're for one another. We want one another's success. We're not in competition. And that culture, we needed to see it grow in the local church, in every setting we're involved with, that we're looking for the blessing of one another. All right, just move on, move on. A leader needs to have faith goals. What are your faith goals at the moment? What are you reaching for? When we don't have faith goals, we can become static. Uh, if not careful, we can have good character values, but no expansion values. So we want to have character values, we want to have good good relational values, but we also want to be on the stretch. What has God got for us? And so it's important for us to have faith goals, to say, what am I actually reaching for this morning? What am I reaching for in my leadership? And let me just say this, leaders inevitably take people into the future. That's what a leader is. He's ahead. He's seen things. And so you live with a tension that you're living here, but you've seen this. And it sometimes comes with the very call. When you're given a call, you're often given a vision, something that you felt God called you to. That'll be at different degrees, values, and some of us will be a kind of a primary leader, some of us will feel well, I'm more of a supportive leader, but you still need to feel now, this is what we're reaching for. There's a kind of faith dimension because, beloved, faith is so fundamental to who we are. And if we're not on the stretch, if we're not reaching for things, faith can become dull like a muscle that's got weakened. And God wants us to be strong in faith. Faith is a huge part of being a Christian. We are called believers. And it's good to have measurable, tangible things that we're reaching for. And so a a, a leader will sometimes be in that tension that he's seen something that that he's not in yet. (laughs) So it says, Abraham, Abraham saw a city which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. And he lived in a fabulous place called Ur of the Chaldees, which was a very rich place. 
And he said to Sarah, let's go, I've seen a city. And you know, within a few days, they're, they're putting up a tent. And she's saying, what, I thought you'd seen a city. What's this tent all about? Because he's living with this tension. Yeah, but I've seen a city. That's why we're living in the tent. <laughs> See, that's what leadership's about. We're not in awe of the Chaldees anymore because I've seen this city. But look, hey, we're in a tent. Yeah, I know. It's because I've seen a city. And every church planter that's sitting in this room knows what I'm talking about. You've seen something. You've seen something which gets you moving. And you have to learn to live in the tent while you're looking at the city. It's like Moses saying, I've got, I've seen a land, it's got milk and honey. Why are we eating this manna every day then? Because I've seen this land, it's full of milk and honey. So we're eating this manna while we're on the journey. But I've seen it. I've seen it. He sang about it in Exodus 15. He gets prophetic. He's singing, how great is God? He says, you're going to bring us into the land, into the mountain, into the sanctuary. You think, where does that come from? We're in a wilderness. What are you talking about? A mountain and a sanctuary. And he's, he's, he's got prophetic. He's seeing it. And leadership has to have something of that visionary perspective. If it's not, what, what do we mean lead? When we lead the meeting. You know, we know which song we're going to sing next. You know, leading, you, you're on a journey. You're going somewhere. You've got something in your heart. Nehemiah, he'd seen a city. He saw it. And a visionary man like Nehemiah, I mean, it's amazing to be honest, isn't it? He heard the city was in wreck, in ruins. And, and he said to his boss, let me go, I will rebuild it. Who do you think you are? You ought to ask a committee. Can a committee do it? Or take a poll? Does anybody want it rebuilt? No, a, a leader is totally unreasonable. In that sense, I am going to rebuild it. And beloved, that's how history, it's people are kind of, I've seen it, it's going to happen. We need that visionary thing that captivates us. It's going to happen, we're going to have it. I remember when they first built the Brighton Centre. I remember it being built. Used to be a cinema there. They built the centre. Used to be a, a, also, it was a ice skating place. They pulled it all down. They built, I said to Nigel Ring, we will have an international conference there. And being a phenomenal administrator, the next day, I got the literature on my desk. And I, I said to Nigel, where's this come from? He said, you said we can have a conference there. So I thought we'd get the literature. I mean, we were just starting a church in Brighton at the time. We started with 38 people in Brighton. But I just found no, we're going to do it. And then, then John Wimber came to Brighton. And, and, and he was the first person to, to, to fill the Brighton Centre, 5,000-seater. He was the first person to ever fill it. And Nigel said to me, is that, is that the conference then? So I said, no, 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 we will do it. We will do it. And then in the mercy of God, we did it. But you live with things that burn in your heart. You live with them. You, you, they, they burn. And Nehemiah said, we're going to have a city up there. And then people said, no. He said, how can you make a city with the burned stones? Burned stones. It's funny, I found when I was in the US, I, I don't hear it so much in England, people say, well, we're in this church, and now we've got together, but we feel a bit burned. And I think, oh, great, Nehemiah builds with burned people. <laughs> You can build with build. You've got to have some vision to lift people. It's part of leadership. 
You have to have that vision, and you live with that vision, and because you, you become the center of pressure, because we're all living now, but part of you is living in the future. So you become sort of part of the pressure. You have to learn to carry people with you from where we are now to where we're going to be. You, you're, you're in the middle of that. You're living with the dream. You're living with the dream. That means you've got to have faith to raise finance, to raise leadership, to raise resource. And the, and the tension is in the leaders. Because the leaders have seen it before the other people have seen it. So there's certain tension in leadership they have to live with. They have to make decisions that draw the future into the present. You have to make decisions about that. I mean, huge decisions sometimes. Like for us, closing stonely. Think, what are you doing? The leaders of Spring Harvest came to my office, said, we want to hear it from the horse's mouth. You're closing stonely? What are you doing? Well, God told us. God told us. I mean, we just knew God told us. I won't go into the detail. We knew God told us. Do you know we were about 225 churches when we closed Stanley? We said we want to do a proper count soon. We think it's 1,400 churches now. See, Stanley was something we did. Stanley wasn't what we are. And God said, now, on you go, on you go, on you go. And going into the future means sometimes you have to leave something behind that you counted pretty precious. And making choices that say, no, I'm going to bring the future into now. And so you learn not to carry stuff with you that isn't working anymore. Or isn't, you see, <laughs> I would have thought Stanley was working. But God said, no, it's finished. If it's finished, it's, if God says it's finished, it's finished. And so there are things you may have meetings that you think, is that bearing fruit? We've always done it this way. I mean, we've always done it. What Jesus said, hey, has this tree got any fruit on it? And they said, chop it down. He said, you can't chop it down. He said, right, dig it around for a year. If it doesn't produce anything, chop it. So there's that kind of, there's a kind of ruthlessness about leadership. A certain amount of pragmatism. That you don't keep going with stuff that isn't helping you to go where God's led you to go. So sometimes you have to say, no, that doesn't work. And, and we can, beloved, out of the sense of love, we can become sentimental. We can cling to things. We know that's got to go. Maybe the way we did the worship. Maybe the people who used to lead the worship. You think, wow, she's always done it. Is, is it leading us into the future? Is it bringing us there? Well, this is going to be costly. Yeah, I know. It's going to be costly. But we've got to do it. We've got to do it. Because God's given us a vision. And if we keep doing this, if we keep doing this, a friend of mine in another movement, a man I greatly love, he was caught with this in a situation I won't bother to describe. And he, he was wrestling. It was really hurting him. It took a year out of his life. Maybe two years. He was battling with this whole thing of future and past. And... And then he went, <laughs> he went to the Churchill War Rooms that you can visit in London. Very worth a visit. And, it, and you hear all kinds of speeches and you can read them as you walk around the place. And he heard this speech. That when Churchill was brought back into the war cabinet, he listened and observed. And apparently he said this, Gentlemen, I observe 
by the decisions you are making, you have no intention of winning this war. (laughs) And for my friend, it just went like a knife. He thought, that's it. I cannot stay there any longer. There's a war I've got to go through. And sometimes we are, we tend to be sentimental. We don't, we're not, we don't lead captivated by the vision God's put in our hearts. And we say, no, I mustn't, as you know, that would hurt him. That would hurt her. And so, yeah, we, we, we don't want to be kind of cold and ruthless. That's where I differed with when Mark Driscoll came to us and spoke in Brighton on the big platform. He was wonderful. In the leader's seminar, he was less wonderful. And, and he talked about don't make friends with your elders. Because you can't fire them. And uh, he said, if you, you don't, he said, make friends elsewhere, which is what I was told at Bible college. I went to London Bible College. They said, don't make friends with your people, make friends with people, uh, pastors in other towns. I think, what are they talking about? Horrific value system. You don't make friends with your pastors, your elders, you can't fire them. Jesus said this, I've, I've, of all those you gave me, I've not lost one of them except the son of perdition. For Jesus to lose somebody. So we, we want to be loving, kind, committed, but we dare not be sentimental when God is saying, come on, we've got to move on. And leadership pays the price. That's where, that's where the crunch, the crunch falls with leadership. And, and, it, and, and, and it's not so, well, well, let's see what the people feel. Leadership has to take the blow sometimes. You have to think, okay, Lord, help me. I'll, I'll, I'll make the choice. See, when you've got, got team, oh, I run out of time. Team is hugely important. Team, I'm always wanting to be in team. And team, team is, a good team is where there's genuine vulnerability, where you genuinely want to know what other people feel, because they fill you out. They've got perspectives you didn't have. A leadership team is one of the most wonderful places to be, because their gift makes up for your lack. A leadership team is not a lot of yes guys. They're not your clones. It's not like you don't really need them. Just do what I say. Do what I say. Do what I say. Do what I say. And they, oh, they're very good. They're very submissive. No, that's not, that's not what we're after. We want a team where there's vulnerability, where there's openness, where you can express disagreement and not feel, hey, you're a rebel. No, I'm for you, but I, hey, have you thought of this? You see, if you can't have disagreement in the room, You'll have disagreement in the corridor. See, two or three will walk out and say, what was he talking about? I don't know what he was talking about. I want that conversation in the room. What do you mean? Well, this is what I mean. Oh, have you thought of? Yeah, I have actually. What about that? Oh, okay. See, if you don't, if you're not, if the the culture is you dare not ask the leader because he's the anointed man. You don't ask him anything. Just do what he says. He's the Lord's anointed. It's terribly dangerous. Terribly dangerous because inevitably and ultimately questions are going to be asked in the corridor. As the guys are walking out, what did you think of what he said? I don't know what he's up about. And then if you start going into multi-site, which many of us are doing, if you haven't got that comradeship thing, you've got guys who are in one circle listening, then they go to another circle to the congregation they're leading. We're going to do this now. Why are you doing it? Oh, I don't know. He said so. Once that starts happening, you lost it. You lost it. It means that it's best that it comes out in the room. Why are we doing that? Well, this is what I... Oh, okay, I see it. 
I see it. And we need to be honest. What is faith? What is certainty? Maybe some big financial challenge. Don't play with people. Don't say, we're going to do it. We've got the funds. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, it's faith. No, it's not. You need to say to people, this is how much we've got. This is what it's going to cost. Now, this is the faith element. This is the faith element. What do we feel about this? We don't say, oh, it's okay. I'm a leader. No, don't go there. Your leadership gift should inspire faith. But be honest with people. Say to people, look, this is, this is what we can raise. This is the challenge. And I just believe we can raise that. What do we feel, guys? Now we're in that together. So we get a culture of openness, a culture where any question can be asked, fellowship, and genuine vulnerability. And somebody said to me when our year team, I had just an afternoon with our year teamers, and they said to me, what makes a good team? And I didn't even thought of, think about it, I just said vulnerability. And I thought later, I thought, no, that's what I really believe. That where we're together, we're friends. Where guys know they're needed on the team. They don't feel I'm not really needed, he doesn't even listen to me. Now I value what you have to say. You've got insights I haven't got. You've got strengths I don't have. I'm just serving you by leading you. So, and time's gone, I'm sorry, that uh, I feel it's been a bit ramshackle. But here are things that I've found valuable, things that have helped me on the journey. I think I've got to stop now, right? So let's just pray. Father, just bless us as we maybe have questions now. Just guide and direct. Amen. Is it that? Terry, thank you. That was, certainly wasn't ramshackle. That was, that was just gold. <laughs> I've got pages of notes there. I'm sure many of us could have just sat listening all day. Thank you so much. We do have a little bit of time for, for Q, Q&A. Uh, not lots of time. I've put my watch down. But we do have some time for some questions. So um, if you have a question, now may be your opportunity uh, to, uh, to ask one. Okay. I will repeat it for the sake of the recording. Okay, the question then is about the uh, dynamic of relationship between legal requirements and trustees and uh, faith. I guess one of the areas could be to do with finance and budgets and those sort of things, but have you got some comments on that? I think that we're always wanting to work towards a very biblical situation. And so from a biblical position, trustees, they're not in the Bible. So they, from a (laughs) biblical... I know that's. I'm not stopping there, right? <laughs> so, but I think it's very important. I think it's very important that that where trustees are, that they, that as far as we're able, because I realise that we're not always in straightforward situations. I do appreciate what you're saying. So, where we where we we feel I've got to set up a trust. We're going to have trustees. It's as far as we're able to. Let's really make sure the trustees understand what their role is and what it isn't. Now, sometimes we're in a situation where we don't have that freedom because trustees are already in place. and, and So we've got to try and work from that situation. So I would say trustees need to understand, and we need to understand, they are taking 
ultimate financial responsibility. So we do want their wisdom. We do want their, if they're good men, you know, or women indeed, whatever their wisdom might be, that we want it. We don't, you know, just do what I say. We're not wanting that mentality. But we don't want, there's the eldership leadership here, and there's the trustee authority there. And ultimately, the trustee authority in the end is calling the tune and really running the church. So if that's what we've got, we need to pray that that won't be the case. And as far as we're able, as trusteeship things change, as they do as the years slip by, that with that is being changed. So we don't, we do want to be as biblical, as absolutely fundamental, be as biblical as we can. So, okay, in the Bible, you're not there. Right? In reality, you are there. We want you to bring your wisdom. We realize, bottom line, you carry a lot of responsibility, so we value you, we prize you. But please, try to interpret what we feel God's showing us as the leadership of the church. That we're looking for that kind of a relationship. And, and we don't browbeat them, we don't bully them, but we, if we, I think, it's, again, we've got to be reasonable and say, look, this is what we feel God is saying to us. And, and sometimes you've got to pray, like anything, because there's this, sometimes the, the, the senior leader, you've seen something that for a little while no one else has seen, maybe. And you have to live with that. And sometimes God's taken quite a time bringing you there. And we can make the mistake and think, well, this is it. And you forget, it took months for God to get that in your heart. <laughs> it might take them months to understand what you're saying. And so... You've got to respect people and appreciate people. But where you get that, you know, well, the trustees say so and that's all there is to it, I think you've got to pray that that won't be a long-standing situation because it's two power centres which are pretty unhelpful. Is that okay? Mm. That's great. Thank you. Go for it. If you have a leader, what are you if you have him? What are you, what are you saying? Yeah. Above you. Okay. Do you want to do anything with that question in terms of putting Yeah, so uh, I think the question to summarize then is how do you handle it if there's a leader that you're working with or is maybe over you um, who you suspect you know, isn't perhaps... Uh, following some of the principles that you, you've talked about and our values, and um, I think that's the sort of gist of the of the question. Yeah, I think I think we're always looking for interrelational, so that there are always points of accountability of some level. So, if there is a, a senior leader over a team of leaders or something of that order, but he is an end in himself, there's no one he's accountable to then it's a dangerous place. So we're, we're looking for, and you know, the sort of structures we're talking about here, churches that relate well, warmly together, there's apostolic team involvement, that hopefully we can get into a context where that can be brought to the light. Hey, you know, this is a problem for us now. And it's important that if that is honestly felt, it's not, see, if it's just one-on-one, you know, I don't agree with him, I think he's self-righteous. 
But if you think, no, no, look, I know she's hurting, he's hurting, they, they left. You know, this isn't just me feeling I don't like his style. This is producing a lot of pain. And, and, and that needs to be brought to the attention of those to whom we're accountable, that this is beginning to be a problem with us. Because can you help us through this? Because, uh, you know, if you say self-righteous, sometimes won't even listen to someone who they perceive to be below them, as it were. But if they're saying, no, we, we believe in this family, we believe in this structure, we believe in the team that serves, okay, well, let's ask, can you come and help us? Because there are a number of people now that are just getting wounded. And, uh, and so the, there needs to be that, I think, some sense that, hey, you can look at, there's problems here. Can you help us through? I think that is, that, to me, that's one of the values of being in a relational movement that you can call people in. Otherwise, people become a law unto themselves and you're in real trouble. Thank you. Yeah, another one, uh, one there, and then I'll come to you. I can't see where that voice is coming from. Oh, there we go. Okay. Okay, how do you deal with somebody on your leadership team who maybe isn't pulling their weight? Well, you encourage them, admonish them, you know, you bring it to their attention if that is a genuine problem. And if uh, I think, you know, the Bible says you're full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to admonish one another. And it says also if one is overtaken in a sin, which could be laziness, that the, the others among you uh, exhort him with all gentleness, lest you yourself get caught in it. So I think we, we, we one another one another. And uh, one of my problems when I got saved was I, I went to a church, and that's why we had to start new churches really, that was a plaque on the wall that said, do not speak to one another in the sanctuary. That's literally what it said. And so I was a pagan, I came into church, and you listened to the preacher who was terrific, but then you didn't talk to anybody. And he went home and then came the next week and listened to him. And that there are over 40 one another verses in the New Testament, and we weren't doing any of them. So, I mean, I'm in my personal reading this morning, working through Ephesians, one of the verses I read, speak the truth to one another in love. There it is. And so, you know, we need truth, we need love. You know, you can have too much truth and no love, you know, so much love, no truth. But speak the truth in love. So, yeah, we just need to get close to people, able, we may sometimes need to build a bridge where you know you'll be heard, but they know you're for them. But hey, we're struggling because other people are having to work and fill the gap. So there needs to be an opportunity. Great. Your 
Do you want yeah, to? Just the connection between some of the things you shared this morning and leadership in maybe the workplace situation. Yeah, I think there are a number of factors which you must tell me if I haven't answered everything. Uh, I think we've just got to understand the church is a voluntary organization and the business place is a different deal. And so you have different relationships with people. But nevertheless, as a either a, the managing director of something or a team leader in a you have an ability by a personal relationship to inspire good response. And I think that when you, you mentioned the word faith, I think it's great in the business world to see the business world as a place of faith. And it's not just, you know, in church meetings. I think we're, we're, we're often limited in our thinking to think all oh, this is just about what we do in church on Sunday kind of thing. And I, I, I know some terrific business guys who really are faith guys. When I've been with Peter Brooks, there's a guy who's got a, now an international business. Whenever I'm there, he says, can I come and pray with you? Every, we're there for two months. Can I pray with you every Friday about my business? And uh, one or two times he's been in a bit of a crisis and come into the elders' prayer meeting, pray for my business. And uh, he's flourishing, to be honest, around the world now. But I think, I think business, a, a guy who's got freedom to be entrepreneurial, to be so in faith, is wonderful. And to be able to bring a team with you in faith. Now, as you, I think you were saying, what about if you hit cynicism in your ranks? Well, I think in the workplace it's, it's different from being in the church because, in a sense, they're secular people. They can be free to be cynical and there's, there's, no, there's no lordship of Christ involved in this. And so, in a sense, you've just got to win them by things that work so that more and more they think, this guy, when he says it, these things happen. And so you've, you have to overcome cynicism in a different way to what we were saying just now about exhorting people from a biblical perspective. You haven't got that freedom. But you, you can... There are certain parallels of winning confidence, but they're free to be secular. And you can't force them to suddenly be in Christian values. But you can win. I think you can win people to, to the faith that you operate... And to the style in which I think people must, you know, in the workplace, it's pretty harsh sometimes, isn't it? To, to work for a guy who's for you and you feel his warmth and you feel he's, he's a man of integrity. You can win hearts. And I think you have to, it's harder work in the sense that in the church, we expect believers to act as believers. And if they're not, we can, we can come to say, hey, yeah, you know, this is what Jesus is looking for in us. You haven't got that in the workplace. So it's tougher, but I think you can accomplish it by your leadership gift. Great. One more question. There's a hand with a, a grey jumper. I can see there. Yeah, do you want to stand and ask your question? Thank you. So I think the question is about that whole theme of dying to yourself, uh, but in a, in a workplace environment. How does that perhaps? Yeah, I think, I think that the workplace, the secular world, 
has overlapped values for us as believers, but is a different context. And there are certain things that won't work in the secular world, but there's an overlap. And I think that we we can display godliness in the workplace. Now, I'm fascinated that in the Bible, it doesn't kind of applaud values in a mystical context. It doesn't say be kind. It says be kind to one another, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. So kindness behind glass isn't, you know, it's in the church is a different community. You're kind to one another. You forgive one another. Christ forgave you. So our relationship with Jesus is constantly affecting the way we are and we learn in the church to build a society that is different to the world. We forbear with one another. We forgive one another and so on. Now that cultivated in church should overflow into our secular world. So we will be inclined to be merciful. We'll be in the workplace. That's the way we live. That's who we are. And in the workplace, it spills over into there. Now, sometimes there are issues in the secular world where we have to speak up because, hey, that is an unrighteous situation in here. Now, I still think it, it, it will affect the way in which we express ourselves, if I'm understanding your question. But I think that in the workplace... You, 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 you have to sometimes say, look, is this what was expected? I don't think we need to be militant kind of people. You know, you, you don't have to come over as all the time pushing for this and this is justice, because I think that is foreign to our Christian value system. But I think sometimes there has to be a, an appeal. Hey, this is what it says, and that's not what we're doing. This is the objective rule we said we'd have in this workplace. It's not being fulfilled. Now, we may sometimes need to raise that as salt and light, and just say, look, this is not a value. We said this would be a value. It's not being worked out here. I think the manner in which we do such things will speak of our Christian value in our hearts. But I think we sometimes have to do that in a way that in the church is different. There's a lot of mercy in the church. There's not always a lot of mercy in the workplace. Okay. Thank you, Terry. We're going to have to close it there. I'm sorry, but we're done for time. Let's, can we stand? I'm going to pray as we close. And then those of you who've got kids in the children's work, you can uh, run at high speed and go and get them. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we do thank you for being with us this morning. Lord, thank you for all that we have heard and learned. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Lord, thank you for all that Terry has brought to us, both in what he's said and in years of faithfully serving you. Lord, we do bless you for him and Wendy and what they've pioneered. Uh, And thank you that we see it in their lives, not just in what he says. And Father, we pray that that might be said of us too, that people may see in our lives uh, what we speak about and seek to promote. Uh, Father, we pray you continue with us over these days. Keep speaking to us. uh, And we bless your work uh, in us and in one another. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great, well thank you so much for being with us this morning. Do join us tomorrow morning for a morning with Steve McLaren.